Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy at Credit Sites. And today I am joined by Pat Luby, our Head of Municipals and Municipal Strategist. He's also an expert and guru on all things fund flows. If you missed our fund flow podcast that we recorded last year, I highly recommend you go back to it. It was a really good one. It was a great conversation. And today we're going to be talking about a wide range of topics as Pat's expertise spans across an awful lot of the market. We're going to talk muni market update and outlook, what's going on in the jobs market, especially with state and local governments. And finally, we'll end on fund flows with the big question, when is cash going to come out of the front end and money market funds? Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Winnie, thanks for having me on. Three topics I love talking about. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. They're good ones for sure. And I think will be very helpful to a lot of clients to start the year. So let's jump right in with a Muni market update and your outlook for 2024. How has the Muni market started the year? I know there's been some gyrations in fixed income with some upward pressure in yields. Are Muni's feeling that pain? They've started the year off a little bit weak. I kind of feel like 2024 started last November, however. After the the you know the painful sell-off in the market in October, there was a lot of money that came into the muni market in November. A lot of investors who were fleeing, uh, concerned about the decline in prices, decline in NAVs of, of fund positions. Yet at the same time, there was a lot of new money that came into funds, that came into ETFs, that came into the over-the-counter market, and they were rewarded with the best return ever of the Muni Index in November uh, in the 30-plus year history of the index. November was was not as spectacular. Excuse me, December was not as spectacular. But December returns were better than average. That set the year up nicely. Now, fund flows continued to be negative at the end of last calendar year. As we're speaking today, they are turning around. Uh, we can talk about that later. But the performance of the Muni market so far in January has been kind of weak. But, you know, that's... The market is kind of weak right now. For the year, I am expecting to see positive total return for the mini market. There is an obvious tailwind from the rates market, with the market expecting that the Fed is going to be in rate cutting mode for this year. Uh, so I think munis will benefit from that. But we've seen some choppiness here at the start of the year. I think it's hard for the mini market to really get a solid footing until there's a good, robust new issue calendar to really demonstrate where market levels are clearing. The calendar started very slow. We've had uh, Martin Luther King holiday also, which uh, subdued the calendar for this week. But I think we're going to start seeing the new issue calendar really come uh, with full force. I think it will be a manageable amount, but I think we'll get a really good measure of where demand is in the marketplace. Uh, and I think a lot of investors are probably in a similar 
similar mode and have been since the fall, looking for constructive movement in munis, taking on duration risk, which I'm more, more of a fan right now of duration risk than credit risk. It's hard to take credit risk in munis. It's a, a much less liquid part of the muni market. I think investors will get rewarded from taking on duration. That could be long maturity. It could be discount bonds with lower coupons. It's not a one size fits all, but I do think duration will get rewarded in here. There's not even a lot of spread in the lower credit quality also. So if you're looking for incremental performance, I think you're going to find it in duration rather than credit. I do think in 2024, however, even though I think that we'll see a positive total return for the year, I do think that returns will be front loaded in the first half of the year. I think we'll see most of the action from the Fed in the first half of the year. Doesn't mean it couldn't, you know, they couldn't extend cuts into the later part of the year, but I think most of the, the market will be satisfied when most of the cuts have, have been made. And that takes away some of the tailwind of munis. And as the market goes into the fall, I'm expecting a, uh, some headwinds for the muni market. Post Labor Day period in munis is typically when new issue volume begins to surge. October is typically the biggest issuance month of the year. So I think we'll see a, a pickup in supply in September and October. And this year is also a year in which redemptions are going to decline from what they've been in the past. So net supply in the muni market, I'm looking for a, a pretty big jump in net supply in 2024 versus 2023. Could be the, the biggest net supply we've seen in a couple of years. That's not necessarily a bad thing. There's not been enough munis around to satisfy demand. Individual investors are still very motivated by the tax exemption from munis, uh, whether it's direct interest in individual bonds or indirect interest for munis through mutual funds, separately managed accounts, or ETFs. Uh, retail demand is, is still very strong. If you look at the shape of the muni yield curve relative to the, the corporate bond after-tax curves, uh, the short end of the muni curve is just ridiculously expensive. That's a function of, of really, really strong retail demand, especially in the high-tax states like New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, California. Don't expect that to go away. So, so bottom line, I, I'm looking for positive total returns for the muni market in 2024. Returns will be front-loaded in the front half of the year, looking for uh, some choppiness in the back half of the year. So yeah, I think there's going to be plenty to look at look at and plenty to talk about. And it's going to be, you know, and it'll be an interesting year. That is a great roadmap for the year. Clients always find it super useful when we can provide pretty concrete timelines on expectations for timing of returns, timing of supply. And just like in Muni's corporate credit market performance really feels like it got pulled forward into 2023. A lot of those returns people were expecting to realize in 2024 became a November and December event on the back of that massive rally in treasury yields and just better risk sentiment across the board. Now, you noted that the fall months are probably going to be a little bit bumpier, mostly due to the supply side of things. But we do have a looming U.S. election in November, and we're calling for some volatility in the summer months in the corporate market as we come into that election season. Is there anything that we should be keeping in mind on munis amid election season or just watching out for in general? Yeah, I think there's there's really three topics I think that are of particular interest when we talk about the elections. Uh, you know, of course, the, the presidential election is front and center, but there's congressional elections also. And the, the fate of Congress is very relevant to the muni market. So there's really three topics of conversation in the muni market that are, are 
relevant as we think about the election. The first is the restoration of tax-exempt advance refunding. Anytime there's a new Congress, uh, this is a topic of conversation that always comes up. Hey, are issuers going to be able to issue new tax-exempt bonds to refinance older, callable, but not callable yet, bonds? That was prohibited a number of years ago. Issuers would like to get that flexibility back. I think that's a non-starter. No matter who wins Congress, it creates a cost to the federal government, at least in the view of the Treasury. So I think the the restoration of tax-exempt advance refunding is a a non-starter no matter who wins Congress. In our view, honestly, the, the more important questions for the fall really come out of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. There's three provisions in there that will expire at the end of 2025. Those are very important and relevant for muni investors. The first is the the so-called SALT deduction, the state and local tax deduction, which was capped at $10,000 by the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That cap will expire along with the uh, several other TCGA provisions at the end of 2025. So that cap on the state and local tax deduction will be removed, effectively eliminating that cap on the SALT deduction. So I think that restoration of the full SALT deductibility, it will be welcomed by many politicians from both parties. So re-eliminating that would seem very unlikely. That'd be a, a political hot potato for any Congress member from any of the high tax states. So I, I think uh, the cap on the SALT deduction will, will probably fall at the end of 25 and, and stay off. Now, the maximum federal income tax bracket for individuals is currently 37%. That expires at the end of 25, and the old rate of 39.6% will be restored. That means that the tax exemption on munis will become even more attractive to those high tax bracket individuals. Munis, which are already rich relative to taxable bonds, will simply become even more expensive for some of those investors or taxable non-individual investors like banks and insurance companies. It probably pushes a little bit more demand into taxable munis, but that demand can't be satisfied now. So that just makes taxable munis that much richer as well. And the big change in the will be the return of the an individual alternative minimum tax. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act changed how the AMT is calculated and indexed it for inflation. This It will return back to its prior incarnation. As a reminder, if you own a, a muni that is a private activity bond and subject to the AMT, owning AMT munis would not put an individual taxpayer into the AMT. But if they are otherwise in the AMT, they would be paying either a 26 or 28% tax on the income from those AMT munis. AMT munis do not trade cheap enough relative to non-AMT munis to compensate for that tax cost. So AMTs need to trade cheaper than non-AMTs. They don't need to trade on parity with taxables, but they're somewhere in between where they should trade AMT has not been a major concern for the market. Most of the AMT paper that's out there has been issued to finance airport improvements. So municipal airport revenue bonds, two-thirds of them are subject to the AMT. No surprise, the AMT, or excuse me, the airport index has been a, a good performing index. It's a sector that got hit particularly hard by the pandemic. So the recovery of airport activity and revenues has been a boon for the the airport revenue bonds, but that index is dominated by AMT bonds. So 
investors need to have their eyes wide open and take, be taking a careful look at their AMT bonds and their AMT airport bonds. Uh, we, of course, keep uh, publish tons of data on that sector and the breakdown of AMT and non-AMT, and that's, that's worth taking a look at because when it comes back, if you're an investor who's subject discovers that you're subject to AMT for that tax year, you don't want to be holding any AMT munis. Thanks. That's a great overview of the upcoming political hot potatoes <laughs> that I am sure we're all going to have to pay a lot of attention yes. to, despite yes. me really not wanting to have to pay attention to any <laughs> of these political things. It is it is not my favorite subject. So you did mention that tax-exempt munis are pretty rich to taxables, and then also that you don't think we're necessarily getting paid to take credit risk in the muni market. How do those two things play into your recommendations for underweight allocations to tax-exempt munis and then also uh, high-yield munis for this year? Sure. So from a, a, a broad perspective, I think most asset allocation recommendations are made in sector recommendations. We look at it on a, a, a tax-neutral basis as if taxes don't factor in. And for a lot of investors, it, it doesn't. So if you're a, a pension fund or a uh, university endowment taxes aren't necessarily an issue. And, and when you're looking at the fixed income markets from that perspective, munis are just flat out rich. Why would you buy an A-rated or a AA muni at a yield that is so much lower than uh, similarly rated corporate? Corporates have superior liquidity. You've got larger size in every QCIP than you typically have in munis. So it's it's a larger, more liquid global marketplace. It's, it's difficult to make the case for those investors. Banks and insurance companies don't pay the same rate as individual investors, but the tax exemption is does not carry the same benefit to them or, or have the same appeal because it's only worth, you know, at the most 21%. If they have a lower rate than that, then uh, the tax exemption is, is worth even less. So even though banks and insurance companies absolutely crave the credit diversification that comes from owning munis in an IG portfolio, it's really difficult to justify adding tax-exempt munis to an IG portfolio if you're a taxable investor. It's inevitable, then our our recommendation has to be that munis should be underweight. Now, there's a lot of those investors who are legacy muni investors who held a lot of positions. As they've rolled rolled off, they have have a difficult time reinvesting and maintaining some of that credit diversification that comes from owning munis. Hence, you see really strong demand for taxable munis when they come. Supply has been pretty thin lately, but anytime there's a taxable muni deal, there's absolutely huge demand for that. I will remind, and we've written about this, I will remind IG investors that if they're looking for non-corporate credit risk for their portfolios, there are a number of private colleges and universities that have corporate debt outstanding. And we've written about this and we can send out uh, links to reports. Uh, but kind of a, a forgotten, overlooked niche of the IG corporate bond market is these these schools, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Tufts, MIT, who've issued corporate QCIPs to be able to appeal to a global audience of investors. And those are, are generally large tranches. There's a few taxable munis out as well. Uh, but the the sweet spot for munis really is individual investors who are subject to the the maximum tax brackets, and even lower tax bracket investors may not necessarily find munis to be the optimum investment. But for simplicity, a lot of retirees, especially you know, they say, well, I I just want tax exemption. I don't want to fool with it. It's easy. It's clean. If I get a dividend check from my my muni investment, I can spend it, and that feels good. 
always feels good to spend mm-hmm. yes. for sure. Um, so let's pivot the conversation a little bit away from muni market specifically and talk about the jobs market as state and local governments. I think we're the surprise heavy hitters in 2023 when it comes to employment. We calculate that about 2.7 million jobs across the U.S. economy were added in 2023. And on the private side of things, we had healthcare, social assistance, leisure and hospitality doing really the bulk of the heavy lifting with those sectors accounting for over half of the job ads. But local and state governments also contributed a pretty significant chunk of new jobs, over 20% last year, which seems high to me. Pat, is that a high number? Are we going to continue to to see this type of robust job creation for state and local governments in 2024? I have a hard time imagining that that pace could be maintained. I think coming through the pandemic, there was a, a lot of need for services and expanded services from state and local governments. You think of all the changes in public schools, local schools, as a result of, of mandates of, of improved air conditioning and ventilation and, and all the things that go along. That, that's required a lot of spending and a lot of, a lot of additional people in, in hiring. State government jobs, I, I believe almost half of state employment is in education related jobs that means colleges it means universe it means state colleges and universities we're all very familiar with in the mini market the the significant demographic headwinds that are that are being faced by the colleges and university there's a declining number of students heading off to college there's a declining number of babies who are getting educated that will affect local education as well but you get declining number of students it's going to be more difficult to maintain that pace of hiring uh, you'll probably see an, an increased amount of attrition without replacement but it also reduces the the political will to provide for funding at the state level and there there's significant costs. Inflation is going to you know, apply uh, increased costs in providing government services in every part of, of their portfolio, and education will not be immune from that. So I think the, the demographic headwinds that we're going to face in colleges and universities will exert some pressure on state government hiring. Uh, at the local level, I think you, you're going to see that in some areas, but I think it'll be I think it'll be mixed. You know, some of the states that have have seen significant in migration. So, you know, is local government education hiring in Texas going to go up? Probably. In Florida, probably. South Carolina, probably. California, uh, probably not so much. And probably region related within California too. So, I think I don't think that we're going to see a, a wholesale decline in hiring at state and local governments. But they've got significant cost pressures coming their way and demographic changes that are going to affect different issuers in different regions and localities different. So, you know, I think it, it's not going to be uh, a, a uniform, you know, picture either plus or minus. That's really interesting. Do you think that I know that there was a number of funds left over from some of the pandemic relief acts that state and local governments had for things like education. Do you think that some of the job creation in 2023 was just kind of the lingering, hey, we, we got to either spend this or we might ultimately lose it? Oh, I think that's definitely a part of it. Even if dollars were not necessarily directly earmarked for educational purposes, the ability for state and local governments to be able to use those dollars to to fill in f- for specific gaps where there was where there is revenue pain uh, on the revenue side of of the ledger. So I think the support from federal aid 
absolutely was significant uh, and, and helped a lot of different programs at the state and local government level. It probably saved a lot of jobs as well, as, as well as allowing jobs to get added uh, that may be in more difficult budgeting circumstances may not have been added. So yes, I think maybe not a direct benefit, but an absolute indirect beneficiary of the federal aid. Excellent. So I guess the main takeaway for clients is, you know, really look at those numbers within the jobs report. Everyone looked at the December jobs report and thought, oh, unemployment went back down. Job ads way better than anticipated. All is well in the labor market. But the reality is the breadth of those job ads has contracted quite significantly. And there are some question marks around the sustainability of the pace of hiring in some of these sectors, including for state and local governments. You know, I think it's, um, you know, a plateau in hiring is not necessarily a bad thing. If it's, an, if, if it's associated with a plateau in, in revenues, then it can be a sign of, of good governance. As, as well. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about the introduction of AI and, and data tools. And this, you know, the muni market especially is really difficult to navigate without being able to look at different sets of data and make some assumptions about what might be going on in a particular locality. Uh, muni issuers, even when they file their, their financials on time, uh, it's still way later than any other segment of the market. Many municipal issuers only file annual disclosures. So uh, it's more helpful if you're trying to get a handle on what's going on in the local economy. Well, what are the sales tax collections doing? What are the personal income tax and corporate income tax receipts looking like? What are property tax receipts looking like? What's local hiring, uh, both private sector and public sector? All of this kind of goes into the the muni gumbo and forming an opinion as to you know what's going on in this this local area. Is it improving or declining or struggling or, or what? I like that. The Muni gumbo for sure. <laughs> so let's wrap it up with our last topic, which is fund flows. This is an ever popular topic with our clients trying to figure out who's buying what and what are they going to continue to buy. So Pat, can you give us a quick recap of 2023? How did fixed income fund flows fare? Try to say that three times fast. <laughs> Were there any big winners, any big losers? What did 2023 tell you about sentiment around fixed income? As you know, and I'll remind our, our readers, when we talk about fund flows, we break out mutual funds and ETFs because there's different investors who are active in mutual funds and ETFs. Mutual funds tend to be individual investors. More than half of mutual fund assets are held in tax-deferred retirement accounts. So you would not expect to see muni activity uh, going in there. You're not necessarily going to see a significant reallocation uh, within those funds because it's frequently going to be a function of what do the assets on the platform look like? And so there's there's reduced flexibility typically for, for fund investors on, on the platform. So we always speak about specifically mutual funds separately from ETFs. All right, so in 2023, we, we saw significant differences between what mutual fund investors were doing and what ETF investors were doing. Investment grade corporate bond mutual funds, for example, in 2023, they lost a little over $2 billion in, in net flows, while IG ETFs pulled in $13.7 billion. For high-yield mutual funds, they lost 20, almost $27 billion in net flows, but ETFs pulled in uh, $3.7 billion 
of net new money. In munis, they were almost totally opposite. Muni mutual funds lost 19 billion and change, but muni ETFs pulled in almost 15 billion. Munis in particular are interesting because muni mutual funds are typically part of a tax loss swap strategy because they're held outside of the tax deferred retirement accounts. Selling a mutual fund at a declined value creates a, a, a loss that can be used to offset a gain elsewhere in the client's portfolio. So net flows out of mutual funds doesn't out of mini mutual funds, doesn't necessarily mean that investors are exiting the investment class. Uh, and that's what we saw is, you know, month after month, week after week of outflows from mini mutual funds, uh, but ETFs were pulling in in net new flows. That's less of the case in IG and high yield corporate funds because most of those are held within retirement accounts. So tax loss swaps in, in, in a tax deferred account, it's just not a thing. Uh, but there is a difference between ETF and mutual fund investors. ETFs are used by not only individual investors in, in self-directed accounts, but also money managers use them. They'll use them as completion shares in an SMA. There are model strategists that use ETFs only in managing portfolios. And there's institutional asset owners who use ETFs as a supplement to their bond portfolio as a source of incremental liquidity for their portfolio. So flows in and out of the ETFs uh, become a little bit more interesting, a little more nuanced, and a little bit more informative than the mutual fund flows. Uh, one thing that we write about, we watch, we don't always write about it, but when it's interesting is we will point out what's going on with block trades in ETFs because there is a secondary market. A uh, block trade in, in equity land is a, a, a trade of 10,000 shares or more. That means for LQD, for example, or MUB, a notional principal amount of over a million dollars. Now that could be mom and dad, mom and pop individual investors. It's more likely institutional money managers. And so we can track and we look at what's the, the money flow in the secondary market trading of block trades and non-block trades. That's information that is not available in the mutual fund market. It's also difficult to, to kind of suss out in, in the bond market, but it's pretty helpful and informative in ETFs. So we, we write about that on a regular basis. We feature it every week in the chart of the day in the U.S. Weekly on Monday mornings. And it's always in the Muni Catch-Up, the detailed Muni holdings as well. So what does 2024 look like and what's going on with money market funds, which are approaching an, an all-time high? I think with money market funds, it's impossible to know with precision. My, my gut is telling me that there's just a greater sense of uncertainty in the market and it's, it's worth keeping... Ex excess liquidity handy now than before. Now there's also a reduced cost to staying short in the, the years when investors were receiving zero on their money market funds or, you know, cash balances. Uh, they had to, they probably would scramble and put their money in something maybe not quite as liquid as a money market fund, but it would le at least be a non-zero return. So I think reserving those needed highly liquid assets and money market funds uh, I think there's two things going on. It's it's no longer a a zero return game. So there's there's some opportunity to just get something off of your cash holdings. But I just think that there's a general sense of of keeping uh, more cash available on the sidelines than before. And I will say it's it's interesting the move the growth in money market mutual funds has almost excluded tax exempt money market funds. So that's telling me it's it's corporate cash managers, uh, it's institutional managers uh, who are who have large chunks of cash because they're using the taxable money market fund instruments uh, more so than individual investors using the municipal money market funds.
there's a lot going on there for sure. And it's interesting, this kind of value that investors are now assigning to having more liquidity, having more cash because of the uncertainty. You know, when you look back at, at 2023 performance, cash did great as an asset class if you use kind of front-end T-bills as a proxy, over 5% return. That's the highest that it's been for a really long time, just given where the rates environment has been. But also cash was kind of at the bottom of the list in terms of performance ahead of only mortgages and U.S., you know, longer dated treasuries. So I think there's a really interesting picture to be painted where, you know, perhaps investors were a little bit overcashed in 2023. And I think we saw some of the squeeze out of money market funds and into something else during that December rally. If I'm recalling correctly, we did have a couple of weeks of material money market fund outflows in the middle of December around that kind of dovish pivot that the market perceived from the Fed and, and Chair Powell's press conference. And the rally in risk assets, including credit, was just tremendous. So if that was just a, a precursor of what may potentially come if the Fed actually starts to cut rates, it's going to be just such a wild environment from a, a spread performance perspective. Yes. And another interesting thing, I'll be curious to see if there's going to be a correlation between the massive flow of interest and money into the Bitcoin ETFs. Is that going to come out of investors' cash allocations or is that coming out of the risk part of the allocation? So we'll, we'll be looking at that and watching that and uh, writing about it as a picture emerges from, from the fog of all this. But I think that's really interesting. And I'm sure that many of our clients, especially who are, who are SMA managers, anybody dealing with individual investors, one of the themes that I've tried to emphasize through the years is an over-allocation to cash also means an over-allocation to reinvestment risk. And in a market environment where we're now, we now like duration and, and being overweight cash or really short-dated fixed income uh, really puts the, the portfolio performance at a, at a disadvantage. Throughout my entire career, I've tried to discourage individual investors from trying to time the market. And this is one of the symptoms that we see when investors try to time the market is, oh, I'll just stay in cash because now that I can get 2% or 3%, whatever it is, it's okay. Well, yeah, but what if it gets to March, April, May, June, and you're thinking, gosh, I wish I put my money back to work in January or last November. Uh, and that's the, the regrets of being overweight in reinvestment risk. And so it's very, very real. And as we look out into the calendar of 2024, and particularly in munis, because we get the se seasonal surge in redemptions in May, June, and July every year, I'm encouraging clients to consider spending down in anticipation. You know, maybe they're holding a cash reserve, spending down some of those cash as, as value comes along uh, and use use the summer redemptions as an opportunity to rebuild those cash balances to take advantage of what I expect to be volatile market conditions in the fall when we see a surge in supply and the growth in net supply be a good time to be putting some money to work. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Stop buying those T-bills. That's, I guess, <laughs> my mandate for 2024 because I was an aggressive T-bill buyer last year for sure. Uh, wish I had capitalized more on that equity upside that we saw. Pat, thank you so much for joining me. It is always a pleasure talking all things munis, fund flows, job market, all of these different areas of your expertise. If anyone has follow-up questions for either me or Pat, you can always find us on creditsites.com using that ask an analyst function. Thanks so much, Pat. 
Thanks, Winnie. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates. Thank you.